Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. What would you consider a patriotic act? I have no idea. <laughs> Me neither. Representing, like, where you come from. It depends on what patriotism is perceived as, right? It's nice when people are proud of their country, but I think when patriotism is seen as exclusive, then I think it's not really patriotism anymore. Would you consider patriotism a good or a bad thing today? I guess the more negative side. Patriotism is never a bad thing. I don't feel like it is a good thing at all. I would like to distance from that term completely. It's seems people who are patriotic go towards like a nationalist extreme. It's an abused term used to justify things that are wrong in your society. White supremacy and white power. It's a really good way to get people to do what you want them to do without them questioning it because it's unpatriotic. I wouldn't go around bragging that I'm a patriot, uh -uh, sorry. <laughs> This is the United States of Anxiety. I'm Kai Wright, and welcome to the show. It's happening again, or really honestly, it just never stopped, maybe never will. But in the wake of the FBI's seizure of classified documents from Donald Trump's resort and private residence, there's been another surge in threats of vigilante violence. And we had a conversation earlier this year with somebody who's thought a lot about this trend. We spoke with conservative columnist Mona Charon. She's a former speechwriter for Nancy Reagan, among a bunch of other conservative bona fides, and has been writing her column since the 80s. Currently, she's the policy editor for The Bulwark. We talked to her after a woman in Virginia had stormed her school board meeting and threatened horrible violence if mask mandates continued. And the conversation that news sparked, it feels useful again right now. So I thought I'd share it. Take a listen. Mona, thank you for joining us tonight. I'm delighted to be with you. Okay, so Mona, let's start with the latest viral video horror, which has been circulating this weekend. I don't know if you saw this story, but it's a video of a woman in Page County, Virginia, at a school board meeting where they're debating whether to continue mandating masks in schools. Here's the clip. All right, no mask mandates. My child... My children will not come to school on Monday with a mask on, all right? That's not happening. And I will bring every single gun loaded and ready to, I, I will call every- okay. That's three minutes. You've, you've gone past your time. It's a policy. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I'll see y'all on Monday. The woman later said she did not mean this threat literally that she was talking figuratively about opposing a mask mandate with all her might. Now, Mona, I won't ask you to comment on the facts of this case, as you may or may not have followed it. But what, if anything, about what you have heard there from her and in that scene stands out to you? Oh, it's just we're so used to this by now, aren't we, Kai? Um, mm. You have people 
Um, you know, for example, there's this youth group uh, called um, Turning Point USA run by a guy named Charlie Kirk. And uh, he, at their most recent meeting, um, somebody stood up and said, because they were circulating the big lie about the election having been stolen, and this perfectly sincere man stood up in the audience and said, look, you know, when do we start using our guns? When do we start mm. killing people? And um, Charlie Kirk, <laughs> his response was a, kind of pathetic, but he said, uh, no, no, that w- we're not recommending that because that would just be playing into the other side's hands or something along those lines. <laughs> not that would be immoral and wrong. <laughs> we don't call for political violence. Uh, you know, no. But in any event, um, this is this is the mood um, that has been engendered by many things over the last five years, um, primarily Trumpism. Uh, but the kind of hysterical uh, resort to violent imagery and violent talk and even violent actions, as we have seen on January 6th, um, has unfortunately become part of our political culture. And it is unclear what, you know, what has what the future holds now that this um, Pandora's box has been opened. Yeah. You, you wrote about this Pandora's box in a recent column. Uh, And you pointed to useful stats from the Washington Post that lawmakers were subjected to 3,900 threats in 2017, which already sounds like a lot to me. Mm -hmm. But in 2020, that number shot up to 8,600. So that's more than double. And it rose even further last year. And you said you've heard from Republican officials or heard of Republican officials in particular who are genuinely afraid for their safety if they go against the grain. Is, is that hyperbole? I mean, what, what are they saying? No, that that is. So in the beginning, uh, when in 2015, <laughs> if you will, um, when Trump was running and uh, there was this uh, bully boy tone that that his you know acolytes adopted, particularly Roger Stone and others, um, you know, at the time, it simply took political courage, the courage of one's convictions to stand up against uh, Trump. But in the intervening time, with pretty much lightning speed, it is now no longer that you have to have political courage. You have to have physical courage because the threats to people's safety are absolutely real. And they are, um, you know, everybody who has done the right thing, uh, for example, uh, regarding the election of 2020, if you look at and frankly, um, Things could have been much worse had it not been for a number of Republican, local officials, state officials, and others who refused to lie, refused to misrepresent the results, did their jobs, showed integrity, right? And it's amazing how many of them have either been rebuked by their local Republican Party, removed from office, um, or had death threats. Um, many of them had to leave their homes because of the threats to their safety. Members of the U.S. Congress uh, were afraid to vote for impeachment uh, in 2021, the second impeachment, um, because of fear for their families. Uh, they 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 knew they would yeah. they would confess uh, that that. They knew Trump was guilty and they knew, you know, they would they would like to or perhaps like to have voted for impeachment, but they were afraid. So, yeah, now we have we've reached the point in America, which I never thought I would live to see, uh, 
where we are becoming more like the countries around the world that we used to instruct about democratic process, rule of law, you know, peaceful transitions of power. And uh, now we're coming to resemble them. You know, it's uh, it's deeply, deeply worrying. You, you have some personal experience with this. Back in 2018, you were on a panel at the CPAC conference, which is, you know, the annual, annual gathering of conservative politicos and thinkers. And by that point, your opposition to Donald Trump was well known on the right. But you've also long been a critic of today's feminist politics. And as I gather, you wanted to make a point about hypocrisy, that as conservatives, you have to stand up to abusers in your own ranks if you're going to have the credibility to challenge what you see as the excessives of progressive feminists. So, yes. so you you did make that point. And, and what happened to you? <laughs> well, um, so I did make that point and I was booed because I was saying um, that you have to, you cannot ignore the um, sexual abuser in the White House and you can't ignore the fact that, that the Republican Party endorsed a uh, known or strongly suspected, let us say, um, child abuser in uh, who was that Senate candidate from Alabama, Roy Moore. And uh, so that was that was in 2018. And I and I, I said, this is you, you won't, as you just quoted me, you won't have credibility and, and you can't. And besides, you cannot. I mean, it's so easy to always criticize the other side. But frankly, as everyone knows, um, when you criticize your own side, you have more credibility than when you're criticizing the opposition. It's nothing easier than criticizing the opposition. Right. But um but it's important to criticize your own side. And by the way, I have to say some of the most gratifying letters that I received at the time were from people who said, you know, thank you for doing this. I've been a lifelong progressive or liberal, and I hope if the, if the tables were turned, I would have the integrity to do the same thing to my side. Which but you was, had to be escorted nice. out by security, right? I mean, I was escorted out by security. Yes, I was. Um, although, you know, maybe that was excessive caution on their part. Who knows? But, uh, but yes, I, I, I was escorted out by security. I mean, I was, I was dumbfounded because they said, you know, how were you planning, uh, to get home? And I said, well, I'm just going to call an Uber, you know? <laughs> and they said, well, we, we need to have you, we need to have you escorted out. So, wow. yeah. <laughs> Basil Rodericks uh, on Twitter asks, what does conservative actually mean? How does Mona Charon use that, that moniker? What is being conserved? Here's how I think about it. Of course, there are, there are different kinds of conservatism, but the one that I was always attracted to was the one that was all about conserving the American founding. And the American founding is based on limited government, maximum amounts of individual liberty and rights for individuals. Um, and then beyond that, my um, the, the conservative worldview is one that is that is open to reform but cautious, you know and and circumspect and wants to take everything into account and is very concerned about process, how you do things, the legitimacy of change and um, and not, um, you know, simply, um, you know, having uh, radical um, departures from the way things are always uh, done. In fact, there's a there's an old story um, that uh, 
that somebody said, you know, that that a conservative sees a a fence that you know he's on a long walk and he sees there's a fence and instead of saying why is there a fence, you know, oh, this fence is in my way, we really need to get rid of it, would say there must be a reason that this fence is here. Somebody built this fence and they must have had a reason. And so that's kind of a long way around mm-hmm. saying that that I regard conservatism as being about prudence, about um, about doing things the right way, about protecting the rights that we all love and and uh, are part of our patrimony as Americans. Um, and and finally, let me just say it's about respect for truth, and that has been the most disorienting aspect of the last few years for me is to see the the disinformation that frankly as an old cold warrior i associated with the kgb mm-hmm. <laughs> but the the right wing media uh, outlets have become purveyors of such lies and it's you cannot have a self-governing people who are so badly um, misinformed and disinformed, if you will. So that that sort of is my summation of my own conservatism and uh, and you know what I think it can be at its best. You're listening to a conversation we aired earlier this year with conservative columnist Mona Charon. We'll take a break and I'll ask Mona about her own political development as a conservative. Stay with us. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Right and happy Labor Day weekend. This week, we're revisiting a conversation I had earlier this year that still feels quite timely. Maybe it's sadly evergreen. It's a conversation with the veteran conservative columnist Mona Charon. She's policy editor for The Bulwark, has been writing about conservative politics since the 80s, even wrote speeches for Nancy Reagan. Uh, but her views on Donald Trump have put her way outside the Republican fold these days. We began by talking about the fetish of vigilante violence on the right, most infamously, of course, in the insurrection, but we're seeing it again right now in the aftermath of the FBI seizing troves of classified documents from Mar-a-Lago. Anyway, that's where our conversation began, but it wound its way into an exploration of what it even means to be conservative. Mona, can can we hear some of your backstory? We we heard before the break how you define conservatism, but um, you know you grew up in the tri-state area here in New Jersey. You were raised by brainy academics, as I believe, right, a psychologist <laughs> and a chemist who were both Democrats. So how'd you right. end up a Reaganite? That's right. Um, well, they were um, they were part of a phenomenon that I don't think is that unusual. Um, they were sort of mainstream, middle of the road Democrats who um, 
actually uh, right around the time that McGovern was nominated, felt that the Democratic Party had gone too far left for them. And so they actually, though they had been Democrats, they voted for Nixon in 1972. Um, mm. And um, and and my my family was very interested in public affairs and we talked about everything. I don't think they quite expected me to become an actual conservative, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but they were very they were they were very tolerant. And uh, and and the fact is, you know, one of the things I worry about is that in our current environment of such heated polarization, um, the thing that I get the most satisfaction from and that I think is one of the crowning glories of our civilization, that is the the process of debate and argument and and hashing things out in a democratic way is at is under threat at the moment. And, mm-hmm. you know, I bet that um, most of the listeners to this radio station have views that are far to the left of mine on many issues, and we could have strong feelings about it and arguments. But there is this attitude now, not that I want to persuade the other side that you know, they're wrong, but I want to crush them and they want to crush me. And therefore we have to kill each other. We have to win. We have to, um, we have to just make sure that they never hold power again or the, or the country is, is going down. And, um, it makes having reasonable arguments almost impossible. But I have to ask about that. I mean, I don't know about the listeners to the, to this radio station, but certainly, you know, I am far, I'm, I'm, I'm probably many miles left of you. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, people like to say, right, like conversations like this one, we're having two media types with very divergent political views used to be normal and never happened, but I'm not sure. Does that really ring true? I mean, we had the point counterpoint TV shows, but I mean, was there really substantive, and I mean this as a question, I mean, in your experience, yeah. was there really substantive sort of cross-debate um, where people changed their minds even um, in a, in a so, bygone era? Yeah, yeah. No, look, I mean, it's a really big subject. And, uh, you know, I would refer people to Jonathan Haidt's book about uh, uh, about how people, oh, I forgot the title right now, but anyway, you wrote a really good book about how people make up their minds. And it's it's actually, there's a lot of tribalism mm-hmm. that goes into it. And a lot of the time we think we're being you know motivated by a good argument, but in fact, our emotions go first. And, you know, so there's a lot of research about that. But I would say that, um, that the tone of, um, of hatred, the the feeling of hatred that that is now dominating on both sides is is definitely new. Um, there was always a certain amount of mutual distastes, let's say, um, but it was still possible, for example, in Congress for the two parties to come together and say, "All right, you know, you think this and we think that, and let's come together and at least craft some kind of compromise." And um, that. Uh, that is less and less possible, although it's not impossible still. I mean, there there are m- moments, and uh, I think you know the infrastructure bill was one, and uh, and possibly, God willing, we will get one of those on um, reforming the Electoral Count Act. So we'll see, but uh, it's it's becoming more and more difficult. Let's hear from Elizabeth on the Upper East Side. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Well, I always listen to your show, and I come from a very conservative background. Uh, my grandfather was chief justice, and my father used to argue cases before the Supreme Court. Wait, your grandfather uh, was, was chief justice of the Supreme Court? Is that what you just said? Yes. Who was your grandfather? And, uh, 
Charles Evans Hughes. Okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> All right. That's well, great. but my father argue, argued cases against wiretapping. He was uh, also conservative, but it depended really. We were raised to believe that it depends on the situation because my grandfather had a case where he argued for the socialist way back and uh, he wanted to be fair. And that's how we were raised to be fair and just, isn't that what mm. justice is? So um, I don't like hearing the left's view right now. I think that they're way too far over towards socialism and nor do I like the wackos that you see on the right. Uh, you just said it. Something has happened to this country. And Elizabeth, what, where does that mean for you? Where Where does that put you then? If you're, you know, if you feel like there, there's these two poles and you don't, I don't open to my mouth much. Oh wow! I don't say anything because you never know how people are going to react. You mm. just don't. And there's a lot of wackos uh, sleeping on the street. I mean, the I could go into how this city is being run too, but I, that's not the point. I'm just saying that you can't state your mind if you're a Republican or a conservative anymore. People really uh, react badly. Well, Elizabeth, thank you for stating your mind to us on this show. We welcome your call and I hope that you will keep calling. Yeah. Um, Thanks, Elizabeth. Very interesting family background there. And by the way, I hope you'll explore the bulwark at bulwark.com where I'm the policy editor and we have um, we have a non-tribal approach to uh, policy matters, and uh, and it's very lively. I hope you'll give <laughs> us a try. Let's go to Josh in Millertown, New York. Millerton, New York. Sorry, Josh. Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Um, I just wanted to ask uh, why uh, you avoided in your definition of uh, conservatism the issue of common good when the preamble to the Constitution not only talks about a more perfect union, but domestic tranquility, common defense, general welfare, and blessings of liberty to ourselves and posterity, so our kids and grandkids. And the whole idea of the common good is an equal part of the founding as well as individual liberties. And I think that should be core to conservatism if I understand conservatism. And I'll drop off here and say thank you. Thank you, Josh. What, sure. How do you respond um, to that? So, um, okay, so the caller mentions common good, and maybe some listeners aren't aware that there is a movement out there among national people who call themselves national conservatives who um, reject the idea of limited government and do do so on the grounds that they want to be uh, they want to pass laws for the common good, and um, there's a lot that goes under that umbrella. And I am not happy about that trend because it seems to me that it is um, that it it sort of has the potential to drive a truck over individual liberty. Um, you know, one of the things that people cite is you know that there was this objection to um, what was it called the, the 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 something happy hour. Oh gosh, um, out mm. in uh, out in Los An- in uh, San Francisco, it was um, drag queen story hour. It was called at the local library. There we go. I found it. And one of the conservatives um, went on a tear about this, saying that you know, it, from his point of view, and he's very involved in this whole national conservatism thing. He said, you know, this is the sort of thing that we you know really need to stamp out, and it's for the common good. You know, it's for your own good. 
And mm. my view is you cannot do that in a pluralistic country, that the genius of our system is we let people to the degree possible, we let people do what they want, and as long as they're not hurting somebody else. And um, if if you stamp out somebody's right to do, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the story hour, then they, when they take power, will stamp out your right to, uh, you know, have religious services or to have guns or to have many things that you hold uh, sacred. And um, and so I, I think there is this, what I am worried about in this tendency is it's it's fierce intolerance and it's authoritarianism. It's potential authoritarianism. You have to let, let, you know, be content to live together in the same country with people who have views uh, that are very different from your own. But why do you think, so someone on Twitter, Lulu, asks a, a version of a question I have, which is why do you think white nationalism has found such easy and comfortable home in the Republican Party? And I guess I would associate it with what you were just talking about as well. Um, this stamping out of pluralism in general, why do you think it has found such an easy home uh, in the party? Um, there's, it's it's always possible to appeal to people's lowest instincts. And that's one of the reasons that leadership is so important. Um, there are reasons that we have taboos and uh, against certain kinds of demagoguery. You know, um, it used to be taboo to make an explicitly racial appeal. Uh, now, I'm not obviously going further back. It was absolutely normal, but I'm talking about in the last, you know, in my lifetime, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and those taboos were important. And when Trump transgressed one after another after another, you know, starting with, you know, I don't like John McCain, you know, the hell with heroism, you know? <laughs> I'm not for heroism, you know? Um, and then, of course, with the, you know, the racial and the ethnic and the rest of it, um, mm-hmm. you know, he he transgressed all of these norms. And and again, you know, to, to use that same metaphor, he's letting this genie out of the bottle. These these tendencies toward um, racial hostility, toward ethnic uh, suspicion, toward um, all kinds of hatreds are always out there ready to be exploited but a country that is health has a, a healthy political culture um strongly discourages that and even makes it taboo as i was saying and when we repealed the taboo it's not shocking that we're getting a lot of it and uh it's just galloping along and and frankly i, I the, one of the things that i find so dismaying is also just the sheer vulgarity of the age we're living in the fact that "Let's Go Brandon" is is chanted at at football games in the South, you know, for, at college football games in the South, um, that's just that's just disgusting. And, the idea uh, that a metaphor just, of bringing guns to to make your point uh, yeah. at a school board meeting is so casual, even if it was meant, <laughs> even uh, if exactly. it was meant as a metaphor and not literal. Is, no, exactly, exactly. So you know the the guardrails are down and uh, and all the sewage is flowing out. If you'll forgive the mixed mm-hmm. metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. That's about right. So in, in the in the couple of minutes we've got left, Mona, in, in your column, you argue mm-hmm. that the the your prescription to this. Uh, is what you call more uncorrupted patriotism from everybody else. What do you mean by that phrase? Right. So I, you know, I I lament the fact that the people who are supporting Trump and who are supporting these, so sorry, my dog is barking in the background. It's okay. He's welcome Um, on there. They got something to say. We we just want to hear him out. (laughs) 
um, is that you know these people who are making citizens arrests and uh, and and threatening local school boards and so forth, they think they're the patriots. And of course, they're the opposite of patriots because uh, they're not respecting pluralism. They're not respecting rule of law. They're not respecting the fact that other people have different views. Um, and therefore, you know, how do you answer that? Well, we have to have a, a better patriotism. And it's important for people who still hold, like our earlier caller, Elizabeth, you know, people who still hold to the old standards of what it means to be a patriot to speak up and say, you cannot hijack patriotism from me. Do, do you think this is unfair to ask with a minute left, but what is the, what is the prospects of a third party uh, for people like yourself and, uh, and Elizabeth? Well, of course I would, uh, I would welcome it, but it's awfully difficult to form third parties uh, in the United States. And uh, if there are clever people out there who've looked into it and, and have some great ideas, I'm open to it. I'm also open to changing the way we vote with ranked choice voting, as you did in New York. I'm open to all kinds of reforms because I think we are uh, sliding. We are really sliding. Is there, is there any real conversation about an, another party amongst? Oh, there's comments? lots of conversation, but as I say, it's there are just all of these um, institutional barriers, and then there's also the the, the right wing ecosystem of information that's out there mm. um, makes it extremely difficult because mm. you have this this hardcore of about thirty percent of the Republican Party that uh, that is in charge and that mm. and that gets oxygen from the foxes and the Breitbarts and the rest, you know. So it's really, uh, it's, a, it's a difficult, difficult situation. Mona Charon is policy editor for The Bulwark. She's been writing a syndicated column about national politics from a conservative spe- perspective since 1987. Thanks so much, Mona. My pleasure, Kai. Great to be with you. And hey, listeners, I've got a question for you. We're working on a show for next week that's all about voting. We are indeed gradually turning our attention to election season. Of course, this is, wait for it, a really pivotal election. I know you've heard that a lot lately, but it is nonetheless true. And another truism of midterm elections is a lot of y'all don't vote in them. I personally would argue they are often more important than presidential elections, but they just, they do not get anywhere near the same turnout. And you know what? There are a lot of reasons for that. Most of those reasons are structural failures in the way we've designed our democracy. But still, we're curious, what does make people excited to vote? And I mean, vote for anything, like even in your block association, for instance. So we want to know from you, was there ever any kind of election that got you super psyched to vote? It could be like for class president in middle school or best potato salad at the cookout. I don't know, anything, including a particular presidential election. What was one election that got you pumped about voting and why? That's the really important part, why? Email it to us at anxiety at WNYC.org. Bonus points for that voice memo. And we're going to use your answers to make next week's show. So, you know, if you don't answer, we're not going to have a show. So you got to answer. Anxiety at WNYC.org. United States of Anxiety is a production of WNYC Studios. You can follow us wherever you get your podcast or check us out on WNYC's YouTube channel, where we also stream the show live each week. 
were produced by Regina Dahir, Karen Frillman, Kusha Navadar, Rahima Nasa, and Jared Paul. I'm Kai Wright, and you can find me on both Instagram and Twitter at Kai underscore Wright. Thanks for spending this time with us tonight, and I will talk to you next Sunday. Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting, but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged.